If you would, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. The title of my message is Gospel Culture. The series, uh, we're going to do a brief series, I'll explain, but the series is Gospel Witness. And so, Gospel Witness, and today we're going to talk about Gospel Culture. Um, In the fall, I think it was September, we began a series in the book of Revelation, Worship and Witness uh, in a Winner-Takes-All World. And leading into Advent, we paused after the prophetic messages to the seven churches, after the the message to Laodicea. And um, not infrequently, I will start uh, a year focusing on aspects of our mission and vision. Uh, By way of reminder, by way of uh, clarity, you know, a variety of things. And this year I want to do that, but I I really want, when when we got to the end of those seven messages, I wanted to take some time and focus on that aspect of witness, worship and witness. And so, gospel witness is, is what we are going to be talking about, and I'm going to really hone in on that aspect uh, of it. In John's vision, uh, the churches are represented by lampstands. And um, we'll we have to ask the question, what is the significance of lampstands? Why are, for instance, the churches symbolized by lampstands? Well, lampstands didn't just appear in John's letter to the uh, churches or or message to the churches in the book of Revelation. They didn't just appear there out of thin air. Lampstands have been talked about all the way through Scripture, and there's a a theological understanding that we have to bring to the table when we arrive to the book of Revelation. And you may may recall in in the first uh, message uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, the Ephesian church, is threatened that their lampstand might be removed. What, what, what would that mean? Why would it be removed? What would the effect of that be? Well, I think as we talked about then, and I'm just going to remind, speak by way of reminder now, Jesus' teaching on lampstands is uh, helpful and necessary. In Matthew 5, he said, You, that's the church, the dis- group of disciples, which Matthew later calls the church, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. See, that was the problem in the Ephesian church. They their light was not shining. It it had gone dark. They were no longer doing the deeds they did at the first. And and so, they were in threat of losing their lampstand. Their lampstand is their witness. The lampstands represent the church because the church exists for the very purpose of giving testimony to, of giving witness to the reign of Christ. That's our purpose. And so it's vital that we have this witness, this lampstand shining in the world. Uh, Lampstands represent churches not just as entities uh, and some sort of one-to-one relationship, but they represent the church as a witness to God in the world. We, in other words, exist for the purpose of being a gospel witness, a light growing out of how we live that others can see and might glorify our Father In heaven. The church's witness as the light of the world for all to see is not an optional extra, but essential to our very existence. We stop doing that, 
we have no need to exist. Okay? This is what we've meant for decades in our mission statement, building a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. Note that phrase, faithful gospel witness. Gospel witness has been, been there all along. In other words, we want to be a bright, shining lampstand that others might see. If, if, if a church's lamp is snuffed out and it's, if its witness ceases, even if people remain, its existence becomes meaningless. So when we think about gospel witness, which is essential to our existence, we want to answer this question. What are the priorities for us as a church in order that we can fulfill the purpose of our existence? What are our, you might call them, missional priorities? Now, when I say missional priorities, I, I think I need to be clear just so there's, you, you're not thinking one thing while I'm thinking another. When I, when I say missional priorities, I'm not talking about missions as something distinct from what we do here. You know, we've got our church and then we've got our missions. And that's how people have thought about missions for a long time, for the last couple of centuries or more. That's how we've thought about mission. But that's a misconception of mission. Um, you know, we do church stuff here, and we support mission around the world. When we think about mission, we need to realize that we have a mission as a church, and that mission consists of both the mission we seek to fulfill here, as well as the mission for which we join together with other churches in unity to reach other places or do other kinds of ministry that we ourselves aren't able to accomplish by ourselves. So our missional priorities will not be a list that would sound something like, well, we are focused on Africa and South America, or we are focused on India and Asia, or training leaders internationally. Those are all fine things, and any one or a couple of those could be, for instance, on a subset of some of the missional priorities that we might have. They might be ways to fulfill them, but they can't be in and of themselves, our missional priority. Our missional priorities, and I'll talk about one of these today, are those things which are essential to why we exist. Uh, so, for instance, doing mission in Africa and supporting that isn't essential to why we exist. It might be part of how we live out what is essential to why we exist. Uh, now, these missional priorities, with, with all the inherent uh, weaknesses of summarizing anything, anytime you try to summarize something succinctly, it's got weakness all over it, and I, we get that. But here are what the five missional priorities are. One, gospel culture. Gospel culture. It is essential to our purpose and existence that we embrace a culture rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ rather than import the world's culture into our context. Secondly, gospel formation. We will, uh, how we gather will be shaped by corporate, relational, and personal practices which purposely form us into Christ's likeness. Okay? Because formation into the likeness of Christ is essential. And by the way, there's probably the greatest amount of overlap between the first two, and we recognize that. There's going to be some overlap everywhere. It's just the nature of it. But we recognize the overlap, but these two, gospel culture, gospel formation, allow us to focus and think about it in two different ways, looking maybe at the same thing from two different angles so that it can help us think about what we're going to do, why we do it, and, and, and so forth. And we'll teach about each one of these. Gospel mercy. 
it's crucial to any church's existence, as far as I believe the Bible teaches, that we are enthusiastically, I'm sorry, I jumped a line, that, that, that we are a community that embodies good news to the poor. That we embody, that we live out the message that is good news to the poor. Uh, gospel outreach. It is vital, again, to our existence and purpose that we are enthusiastically engaging our community with the good news of Jesus' reign. And then gospel unity. We, we must constantly recognize that we are only part and parcel of all that God is doing in the world, and we must strive to find unity with the broader body of Christ in order to participate in God's grand mission in the world. So, I think it's fair to say that these are the missional priorities set out in Scripture for the church at large, though they could be expressed in myriad ways. That's just how we're expressing them. It's also true that you could put so much under some of these that they would become unwieldy. I, I get that. Uh, so I'll be taking each one of these and hopefully give clarity to what we mean and endeavor to accomplish as we, is expressed in them. Um, so today, Gospel Culture, if you would read with me in Galatians chapter 5, Beginning in verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say... Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would write the truth of your word in our hearts by your spirit who lives in us, that Christ in us, it would be no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us, so that we might live by his spirit dwelling in us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a danger in believers, that's us, Assuming that our culture is either neutral or that our culture is sort of semi-Christian or, you know, worse yet, Christian. That's our culture. Um, 
We often do this unconsciously, our, our default, any, any of us. It's just how we are. It's how I am. It's how you are. Our default is to assume that we are neutral. That, that, that whatever I and my experience is, that that's the norm. Everything else is outside that norm. Um, it, traveling to a minority world country, uh, one can more readily see our culture. You know, Donna and I went to Madagascar for a couple of weeks the first time. We've been three times for about that same period of time. And when we're there, it's really easy to distinguish what our culture is versus where we are. It just, it just, it's like, wow, that's obvious. And it's also strangely weird how you see the influence, usually in bad ways, of our culture on them. You know, the ways they try to imitate the things we do as Americans, but it just sort of fails. Or the things that just sort of roll downhill and hit them on the way. Like, you know, oftentimes many people, the, the only clothing they wear is what's sent over from America, right? Well, I'm glad they have some clothing. But then when you see them wearing clothing that clearly doesn't reflect who they are, it's just like so out of place. And, and so it, it just seems odd, the, the things that they're written on their shirts and so forth. They don't even know what they mean. They don't care, um, <clears throat> you know. It's clothing, but so there's there's both some good things you see, bad things you see. But you sitting there, you recognize that wow, that this isn't America. I mean, Donna and I, we just like we looked at each other after the first few days and said, we are not in America anymore. This this is it's a different thing, okay. But the other thing you discover is that the gospel is working there. In fact, if you go to the minority world, or, or the majority world, the place where, where, where more people live than in, in our Western culture, you discover that the gospel is growing faster than it ever, has ever grown. The gospel doesn't need our culture. The gospel doesn't need our culture. It doesn't mean our culture is a bad thing or a good thing. Our culture is our culture. I'm not against our culture. I'm fine with our culture for us. There are things about it that are sinful, things about it that are good. And we have to be careful to discern those things. But I'm not against culture, okay? Let me be clear about that. But the gospel doesn't need our culture. Assumptions about our culture being kind of the norm, everything else being different, tend to blind us to what our calling as citizens of the kingdom of heaven is. The heavenly culture, and there is a heavenly culture, what we're calling gospel culture, is how we are called to live. To be a faithful church today and Tampa Bay means that we must manifest a distinctly gospel culture such that the church, this community of believers, becomes something that helps people understand the gospel. Now, both making it easy and difficult, there are no lack of texts from which I could preach gospel culture. I mean, they're all over the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the, the, the Christ hymn. Uh, Ephesians uh, as a book, uh, Colossians, Hebrews 13, uh, all would be excellent. Um, book of James is, is an example. But I'll, I'll focus on Galatians, at least primarily. We'll look at some of those others, but our focus is going to be on Galatians to begin because it speaks to the issue of gospel culture, both from the standpoint of what it is and what it is not. It speaks about gospel culture, what it is and what it is not. And uh, so we're going to begin with the latter, what it is not, what gospel, gospel culture is not. Now, if you're familiar with the whole letter, epistle we call it, which is just another word for letter, to the Galatian churches, you might be aware that Paul had nothing to commend in the Galatian churches. Even his greeting is a bit cold. 
I mean, usually he'll identify something positive in the churches to whom he is sending a letter. And here it, it reads, to the churches in Galatia. Wow. <laughs> I mean, t- compared to, say, to Rome, who he's never even met, he writes, <clears throat> to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Or how about Corinth? I mean, you know what Corinth was like. There are troubles galore in Corinth. But he says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. To Ephesus, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the, whole, the, the faithful in Christ Jesus. But to Galatia, to the churches in Galatia. <laughs> then, then where he normally writes about how he prays for the church, which is always instructive, he writes of his concern instead. He doesn't even write out a prayer for them. He doesn't mention praying for them per se. Later, there's some reference. We'll read that. But <clears throat> he writes of his concern that some are throwing them into confusion and perverting the gospel of Christ, saying, let them be accursed. Why is Paul so deeply concerned? What is it that has him so deeply concerned? I, I would, and I can make the case from Scripture, that the Galatians had confused what the essential culture of Christ's kingdom was all about. The Galatians had confused what the essential culture of Christ's kingdom is all about. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul's relating a bit of a biographical account of his experience there in Galatia. And he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him. By the way, Cephas is the Aramaic for Peter. Same guy, you know, the apostle. Um, Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Just underline that phrase, Jewish customs, which are talked about all throughout this this letter, the first few chapters, to be sure. We, who are Jews by birth, and not sinful Gentiles... You can just imagine how how he would say this to bring out how they were thinking it. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. Because that's how these people he's writing about would have thought it, right? We know that a person is not justified or set right by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified or set right by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be set right. No one will be justified. See, false teachers had told the Galatian churches that the culture of the kingdom was about what you eat who you eat with, whether you're circumcised, what festivals you celebrated. That's essential for the culture of the kingdom. 
And they could even open their Old Testaments and substantiate it. Look, this is all about the kingdom. And look, these are the things we're told to do. The, the, the closest thing, and, and I'm, I always hesitate to illustrate with something like this, so uh, let me give you a, 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 a disclaimer before I do it. But the closest thing that I think we can relate this to in our day may be the way that we see, the, the, what we see in the Amish way of life. To be clear, there are many things about the Amish that I respect. Um, and I do not fully understand them, so what I say is certainly a caricature and not the whole story. I, I, I put that up front. And my plan is next week to illustrate some things positively from the Amish for the record. But that said, the Amish don't own cars, though they will hire a car or a ride, as they might put it, for the purpose of travel. Now, some might look at that and think that's hypocritical, but why do they not own cars and hire rides yet? You know, they can call an Uber get a taxi, go, but they, they can't own a car. Why? But, well, because cars are a status symbol and people use them as a means of exalting themselves. Okay? They don't have many mirrors, preferably, preferably not full-length mirrors in their homes because it promotes a focus on external appearances. The men wear beards if they are married and no mustaches because they're nonviolent and mustaches are associated with violence because soldiers often have them. And maybe they... Maybe because they have no mirrors, all the men wear Dutch boy haircuts. Certainly, if they saw them, they wouldn't. The, the women dress plainly with nothing highlighting the shape of their bodies. Now, I think you can detect that many of these things have at their root good motives and godly desires. You know, they, they, they want to, to obey God. But if we think for a second that we can dress a certain way wear our hair a certain way, not own a car, and never a mustache, etc., and somehow obtain a gospel culture, the presence of the kingdom, or the setting of things right, we could not be more wrong. The only way to obtain a Christ-like culture is by by, by fierce loyalty to Christ, something we call faith. That and only that will set our lives right before Him. That and only that can produce a gospel culture. So, that's the Amish. And of course, Paul was dealing with the the, uh, circumcision group and what they were bringing to the table. But what about us? What are the things that we might be tempted to allow to define our culture? In this church or in any American church, I'm obviously speaking more specifically here, but it can be the kinds of things we would experience in in evangelical churches, what might we be tempted to allow? Well, I'll give you some. Some will hit closer to home than others, but how about homeschooling? Now, let me be clear. Homeschooling can be wonderful and terrible, but it does not define a gospel culture. Kind of like the reason for not owning a car for the Amish. It may have good, godly foundations, but it cannot be a required cultural mark for the kingdom of God. Being married and having kids. Now, to be clear, while Christ may urge one to marry and have children, a culture that measures a single Christian as less than those that are married and have children is not a gospel culture. (coughs) Stay-at-home moms. Donna stayed at home uh, 
did not work outside the home from the moment we had children until they were out of the home. I wouldn't change that for anything. We did that because as Christians, we, we thought it best for our family. And, and we were willing to make the sacrifices to do it. But we also did that because as middle class Americans, we could make sacrifices necessary and do it. Not everybody can. Not everybody's in the same circumstance. It is not inherently gospel culture. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's not inherently gospel culture. Being Republican or Democrat, or for that matter, American, gospel culture must supersede any national identity to be a gospel culture. It has to. Here's a good test. If somebody was visiting that was a believer living in, I don't know, the Philippines or living in somewhere in Africa or in Asia, what we have as a culture that we consider gospel culture essentials should be something they could take home with them and apply. It wouldn't need transition or translation because it would be, it would be obvious to them how it works there. It's something that supersedes our boundaries, if you will. I know Christians whose convictions require them to vote Republican. And I know other Christians, believe it or not, for some of you, whose convictions require them to vote Democrat. But any culture which makes one or the other of those a basis for table fellowship of genuine affection and welcome is out of step with the spirit of Jesus Christ just as much as the circumcision group was. Being culturally hip might be one of the things we would... Of course, around here, no one's going to accuse us of being culturally hip. I mean, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you, you, what you see is what you get, okay? <clears throat> um, it, it's, it's not a particular worship style that is the culture of the kingdom. Casual or not casual, those aren't things that define the culture of the kingdom of God. They probably more likely define the demographic that we tend to be, Okay? Uh, a focus on learning Scripture. Here, here's one that we might really be tempted to allow to define culture, and, and, and it's a dangerous one. Uh, a focus on learning Scripture without equal focus on formation into Christ's likeness is a dangerous substitute for gospel culture. A dangerous substitute for gospel culture. Okay. What, what are the non-starters for gospel culture? What are the non-starters? Well, in our text we read in, in, in Gen- uh, I'm sorry, Galatians 5.19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. <coughs> Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fleshly indulgence stands in contrast to a life of positioning ourselves as humble servants who love. We we are to to serve one another in love, according to verse 13. Sadly, Christians today are often known for being belligerent, thinking that they are always right, willing to listen to others. I mean, we may, to some degree, be successful at the first part of that list. Oh yeah, we've gotten uh, a handle on sexual immorality, purity... Uh, uh, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, but, but then the hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, well, that, 
which takes up the most of the list, we aren't so successful at. Those are the things that are vital that we get, get a handle on. Um, Christians are often known for belligerence, thinking they're always right, unwilling to listen to others. In and, and, and the November 2021, so a year and a few months ago, um, of Eternal Perspectives magazine, Randy Alcorn wrote this. In the 52 years I've known Jesus, I've witnessed countless conflicts between believers, but never more than in the last year. Many have angrily left churches they once loved. Believers who formerly chose churches based on Christ-centered Bible teaching and worship now choose them based on non-essential issues, including political viewpoints and COVID protocols. He continues, Churches are experiencing a pandemic of tribalism, blame, and unforgiveness, all fatal to the love and unity Jesus spoke of. I might say all fatal to a gospel culture. Rampant, either-or thinking leaves no room for subtlety and nuance. Acknowledging occasional truth in other viewpoints is seen as compromise rather than fairness or charitability. Sadly, evangelicals sometimes appear as little more than another, another special interest group, sharing only a narrow unity based on mutual outrage and disdain. A pandemic of tribalism, blame, and unforgiveness. Now, the reality is that the pandemic, and that's the time period that he's referencing, did not create that problem. It only exposed that problem. It applied pressure, and that's what oozed out. That's what oozed out. I mean, you know, what what happens if you take a Coca-Cola can... And you take that can and you shake it 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 and then you take and you pop the... What happens? You pop the lid. What if it was an empty can? Nothing comes out. See, the shaking's not the problem. It's what's in it. The pandemic could merely shake the can. What was in it is what exploded out and that was the problem. It was sitting there long before it was shaken, and it needed to be addressed, and we must deal with it as a people. Gospel culture is essential. Um, Those things, tribalism, blame, unforgiveness, that, that sort of culture of blame and accusation, these are the works of the flesh, and they stand in opposition to the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So... So, so now, let's turn to what gospel culture is. We've looked at what it is not. It's not a lot of these things, but what is it? What, what is gospel culture? The most fully orbed description of gospel culture, if we're going to find it in one place, may be this list of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, or as it's listed in the NIV now, forbearance, um, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Now, we don't see humility there, but the word translated gentleness is one of a few words that can be translated humility. So I, it's this sort of effect of humility, this gentleness. It's a gentleness that grows out of humility, and I would also argue that humility is necessary for all of them. If you don't have humility, the whole thing is falling apart. 
Now, it's the fruit of the Spirit, but who is the Spirit by which this fruit is born? Now, to be clear, in making this distinction, um, I know that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are both part of the Trinity and therefore God, and that ultimately the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. However, I think an important point may be missed if we merely assume that is the fruit of the Spirit, that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and we bypass the reality of Jesus' involvement in this. Uh, it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, to be sure, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But it's more specifically the Spirit of Jesus Christ that's in reference. Let's go back to chapter 4 so that I can show you why I say that. If you go back to chapter 4, and beginning in verse number 4, you'll read this. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to re- redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you, are his, because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. So, He's been talking about how God has placed the Spirit of His Son in us, when in chapter 5, he picks up the conversation about walking in the Spirit, the Spirit that lives in us, which is the Spirit of Christ Jesus, the Spirit of Sonship. In verse 19 of chapter 4, Paul writes, and this is where he at least uh, innuendos prayer for them, thankfully, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Christ being formed in us is what brings out the fruit of the Spirit. Okay. The fruit of the Spirit, or what I'm calling gospel culture, will not grow out of conformity to external standards, but only as Christ is formed in us. It is that spirit of sonship which cries, Father, Abba, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And that is what will bear this fruit. A gospel culture is what will exist in the new creation. A gospel culture is what will exist in the new creation. So now I'm going to focus on why it is also the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I'm going to have it both ways. You know, I'm the preacher. I can do that if I want to. Um, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is the deposit, according to Ephesians chapter 1, guaranteeing what is to come. The Holy Spirit is the first fruit of our whole inheritance. We, we know that we get the whole thing because the Spirit's been given to us now. Okay, So the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of our whole inheritance. So the fruit then is a taste of the heavenly city, the culture of the heavenly city. The fruit is that taste. It's, it's of what is to come. It's the culture here that represents what will be there. And by the way, when I say the fruit, that is the taste of the heavenly city, the pun is intended, and I hope you uh, appreciate the pun, but it's, a, it's an important one because it is indeed a taste. Leslie Newbigin said it this way, the spirit brings the reality of the new world to come into the midst of the old world that is. I'm going to reread that. The spirit brings the reality of the new world to come into the midst of the old world that is. The spirit is the recognizable presence of a future that has been promised but is not yet in sight. 
That future is present among us because of the Holy Spirit in us. And because the Holy Spirit is in us, we can bear fruit in a life that has the characteristics of the heavenly life. And that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. Elsewhere, Paul tells us that even spiritual gifts will pass away, but faith, hope, and love remain. I think the same could be said about the whole list of the fruit of the Spirit, that they remain. Just because they're not listed in the faith, hope, and love, I mean, Paul's point is that there are things that pass away and there are these things that will pass through to heaven. And certainly, we could put this list there. Now, I want to speak briefly, a little bit of time that I have left, about uh, gospel culture from a couple of other places. Um, Well, really, James in in particular. Uh, The the book of James, but in chapter 3 specifically, James describes what I would call gospel culture similarly, but from a different perspective. And he says this beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, and by, or by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, I, I, I can tell you from personal experience, I find these verses very helpful Anytime I'm going to be in a context where there's going to be discussion or back and forth about theological stuff. So if I'm going to a classroom setting where discussion is invited, I read these verses that morning and pray through them so that I might be a godly presence instead of an ungodly one in that context. If, it's just it's vital. If, if you're going to meet with somebody that's got some things to say, read these verses. They're going to be helpful to you, okay? Because it... It's, we, we get so focused on being right, but what's so clear here with James is that what's right is what's humble. I mean, he just, that's the wisdom from heaven. Um, this heavenly wisdom that he speaks about generates a humility that transforms how we engage others, especially those with whom we disagree. It puts to death our need to be right. It puts to death our anxiety when hearing their perspective. It kills our tendency to always cast our opponents in the worst light. It remains pure, peaceful, maybe a better translation, considerate, not insisting on every right of letter, of law, or custom, but yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. That's what considerate means. The NIV's uh, submissive is literally open to reason. I'll tell you, most Americans have lost the ability to be open to reason. I don't care which side of the aisle they're on. Lost the ability to be open to reason. And certainly it's not different in the church. We're just not open to reason. And that, that needs to be put to death. Um, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality, and it is without pretense. That is gospel culture. It's more than this, but it's not less than this. And it is central to our accomplishing what we are called to be as a church that we 
strive to see this flourishing among us. It's essential. The implication in James' letter is that you can have heavenly wisdom and earthly or demonic wisdom in the same community, both presenting themselves as heavenly wisdom. So he's given us a way to discern that. To distinguish them. Galatians 6, back to our text in Galatians 5, but right after that text, the very next verses in Galatians 6, demonstrate for us what it looks like when the fruit of the Spirit meets someone overtaken by sin. And what we see is a humble gentleness. And that, Let's read those verses. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible on these. But, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual... Restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. You see, when the fruit of the Spirit is present among us, an environment for someone who's overtaken in sin is a safe environment. It's a safe place for them to find healing. I'm, I'm, please hear me in context of what I'm saying in my life, but I'm leery when I hear people talking about the importance of accountability. I mean, nothing wrong with accountability, don't get me wrong, and, and for somebody to mention it isn't a problem, but I'm talking about those who that's what they harp on. That's what, that's their thing. Accountability. Now, one might think that they're somehow in those settings where that's what's talked about, required to go in and start talking about their deepest struggles with people they hardly know. And which that in and of itself can cause trauma and create a bit of a cultish environment. If, however, we focus on humble gentleness such that we restore those who get overtaken by sin, people will feel safe and they will open up. I'm not saying that people shouldn't open up, confess their sins, and be honest. Yes. But if we create a safe environment, that will grow naturally. Rather than Demanding accountability, which puts the onus on the one in sin. Whereas, saying that let's create an environment that's safe with humble gentleness, that puts the onus on the spiritually mature, where it ought to be. Amen? Okay. We could add to gospel culture, and I'm just drawing from Hebrews 13, I'll just rattle off a list, but hospitality, which is literally stranger love, care and protection for the weak and vulnerable. And surely what, is, what must be added is uh, fleeing from the love of money, greed, selfishness, and so positively put, generosity is part of gospel culture. So we've, we've listed a lot of things, but what does this mean for our mission? What does this mean for our mission? <clears throat> First, gospel culture, we, we've put that at the top of the list because without it, the rest of the mission is hollow and empty. In the end, without it, we, we do more harm than good. And, and don't get me wrong. It's certainly not that we have attained it, but we must press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. Amen? Second, it means that learning how to live in love with each other and our neighbors is essential to our mission. We must shed the false dichotomy between word and deed. Uh, A true gospel mission must focus on both. Um, But we also must shed the false dichotomy between sort of this inward health of the church versus outward reaching the community. 
you can't do either effectively without the other. It means that growing in humility is vital to mission. Growing in gentleness, growing in joy, patience, learning how to talk with those who think different is essential. It means that we cannot forsake looking inward while turning our gaze outward. And the next thing that it means, kind of a, a, another category, is that, it, and this one, to be sure, could take a whole series to explain. I've touched on it in the introduction, but I'll expand briefly here. Um, <clears throat> it means that the church must focus on the things that are eternal and not part of the passing, provisional kingdoms. The church's mission is on the things that are eternal. Okay? There are earthly institutions ordained by God for this passing world, and Christians should engage them and be equipped to do so by the truth of Scripture. That is vital. But they are not the core work of the church. They are not the things redeemed. God is redeeming a people for Himself. That is eternal and supersedes all temporal, temporal earthly structure. In other words... We, we walk out of here into the mission field and we go and engage all sorts of institutions where you work, our government, our city, all sorts of things. They are things that we as believers need to be fully engaged with. But we are here to be focused on those aspects of our character and nature and lives that are eternal. And that will equip us for the other. But our job isn't the other. See, our job isn't the other. Our job is... As, as a gathered people, is to focus on those other things, to equip us in our lives, to bring that with us in what we do. Again, that could take a whole series to distinguish, but i just throw it out there. And then finally, as a missional priority for us to develop a gospel culture here, it's essential to our existence. It's one of the very reasons for our existence, that there might be a taste of heaven on earth, an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. We can't exchange that in order to gain an outward focus. And we must not think that we should. We must think that both are essential to the mission of God. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, at the end of the day, gospel culture can be summed up in one word. Jesus. That Christ would be formed in us. That Christ would be formed in us. Lord, make it so. Lord, as we think about what's a priority for us as a church, the things that we should be doing, this is one of those things that has to be big on the board. How are we doing in this? What can we do to strengthen it? Where do we need shoring up? Each of us, Lord, have areas of our lives that get poked on as we walk through all the things we've talked about this morning the fruit of the Spirit, the description in James, a short list from Hebrews 13. Where are we in all these things, Lord?
Shine your light in our hearts.